Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Vontoon Quinlivan, CEO of Futuro Health. Workforce issues such as shortages in key positions and staff burnout continue to be ranked by hospital executives as their number one challenge. Today on Workforce Rx, we're joined by Laura Beeth, a human resources veteran who will help us understand the problems more fully and share some initiatives she's overseeing in her role as Vice President for Workforce Partnerships at Fairview Health Services, the second largest private employer in Minnesota. Under her leadership, Fairview has won wide recognition for its innovative workforce development initiatives, including being tapped for the White House Hope Street Healthcare Career Pathways Network. In addition to her work at Fairview, Laura serves on a variety of workforce employment boards at the state and national level and is a content expert for numerous publications focused on healthcare workforce best practices. Oh, we speak the same languages. Thanks so much for joining us today, Laura. I'm so happy to be here with you, Vaughn, and I look forward to this interview together. Well, Laura, I want to hear the origin story. Martin Scaglioni who formerly headed up the Hope Street Group, called you the godmother of healthcare workforce development. How did you get started? Well, um, I'm very proud of my background. I had um, worked in both hospital and urgent cares and clinics early in my history. And were involved in very innovative programs, started the first urgent cares in Minnesota and then worked in occupational medicine. And I wanted to use that skill from helping patients to helping employees and people in the community. So I always feel like my job is to help people succeed through education and employment. And so in 1995, I was tasked with opening up a career resource center, a job transition center, and our first workforce development center at Fairview Health Services. And we were the only health institution that I believe had those services. And so immediately, the first year, we were doing proactive career development, helping people that had any type of disability find permanent and regular employment. And soon after, when we had a reduction in force, we needed to redeploy people through job transition. And it was just like a light went off. We need to develop retraining programs and job programs. So over the course of 25 years, um, I've offered and led our institution in running many um, registered apprenticeship programs, as well as short-term training programs and programs from two weeks in length to doctorate level programs. And they're all based on critical needs in our organization. And now more than ever, um, we've been doing just more and more partnerships with the community to really work with untapped labor pools to bring them into healthcare. And so this journey has been over 25 years, so actually 28 years. And it's just been an honor and a privilege to be part of helping hundreds of thousands of people get jobs and get scholarships and help them with their vision and dream of working in healthcare. Well, Fairview was ahead of its time, and you as its leader was clearly ahead of the time in terms of doing the work to bring the untapped into the healthcare labor market. Mm-hmm. What are you experiencing right now at Fairview? Maybe you could give us some, some descriptive information about what's going on. As one of the largest employers in the state um, and 
the academic medical center in the state of Minnesota, we have great challenges. And so they range from frontline workers, people in nursing assistant roles that are critical, uh, all the allied health professions, so surgical technologists, respiratory therapists, medical lab careers, imaging careers, and of course, nursing and mental health positions. And so um, I'm tasked with tripling the number of earn and learn programs we have in our organization. And I'll just say the work that we do and Vaughn, what you do is very intentional work. And so no longer can we count on people just proactively looking for us and going on our applicant tracking system. So we're really going out deeply into the communities, especially communities with high social determinants of health and really working that vision and partnership to help them move into healthcare careers. And so um, a third of our external hires come from the workforce development team. And these are people that would probably not find us unless there was an intervention, unless there was a job fair, a community partnership, a scholarship, an earn and learn program, some kind of pathway. It's really changing our demographics. We look at our BIPOC demographics every month and we are increasing our racial diversity with a goal of having one third of our employees be a people of color in the next five years and we're well on our way. And so that outreach is bringing in people that were serving as patients. Now they're working for us in our institutions as well. Mm, congratulations on all those statistics. Great work. Can I ask you, you know, most of healthcare employers have begun if, if they didn't already have full-fledged programs, they began tiptoeing into this, uh, doing intentional work on, on workforce development. The funding for the team that takes on the work, but also the funding for the learn and earn, which means that someone is an employee, and as they skill up, they have access to greater opportunities within the organization. Are those budgets central? How do you budget as an organization for those um, activities? When I started this work, it was our CEO's initiative to be the champion and support having a workforce development center and workforce development services. So we have infrastructure and it's a centralized budget for the employees on my team that do this mission work in the communities. And what I would say with um, paying for programs, there's always been ROI. On occasion, like many of the large health systems, we've been fortunate to partner on many, many grants, including the first apprenticeship grants out there. Um, that money is to get us started in that, but then we sustain that funding. And so most of our um, earn and learn programs, some of them may have started with grant funding, but we continue them on and we do apply for other grants. But we try to braid funding. We'll look at our tuition benefit, which is $5,250 a year. Um, and then we offer additional scholarships. And if it's a critical job, an earn and learn program, like an apprenticeship program, then we'll add another $4,500 to it. So we're trying to make the cost of education near zero for the individuals. And then, of course, they're earning a wage while they're in these programs. And what I have found with my history when I started these programs, these are not the individuals that leave our organization. These are the people that stay. There's loyalty. When I started our operating room program, it filled 90% of our jobs and 95% of the people stayed. And there was like a major life event for someone to leave. Now with after the pandemic, it's probably like 80% because a lot happened with people wanting to be home with their kids and so on. But what I have found is, you know, you can 
give money away on a sign-on bonus or other type of bonuses. But when you invest in people and believe in people and it's a long-term commitment before they start, while they're in their earn and learn program and working, after we provide job navigation skills with wraparound support for people that need that, it's it's like their family. They I mean they want to stay. They're not the people leaving. So we track a number of things in our organization to prove that case. I developed a case for workforce development that's published, and that is to explain to others why investing in people is important. And so we'll track how many people we've hired in zip codes that have high social determinants of health. Those numbers we track every single month. We track how many people we're hiring at events that we actually like worked with someone at an event and helped them apply. Um, it could be someone homeless that didn't have a place and would not probably have made it through our system if they didn't have a place to interview. We track the number of students that are unpaid that we're working with on red carpets to get them in and out and through experiences. Um, and then we also track all the earn and learns. So every month I'm turning in those numbers and we'll get to just in um, the end of the year, we'll probably have 4,000 of those people that were hired just this year. And that goes into thousands and thousands. I've run talent management and talent acquisition in the past as well with the recruiting functions for physician recruitment, regular recruiting, executive recruitment contingent as well. But this work is where you're investing in people and it's very intentional. And Laura, you mentioned that all these metrics are published. So if someone in the audience were interested in pulling the report, where, where would they find it? I would say, you know, of course, my LinkedIn profile has a lot on there with publications. Um, Fairview Health Services has also signed on as one of the key authors and signatories for the healthcare workforce impact commitment. And so we publish our work through them as well. We turn in our data with the number of hires, the number of impact hires where we're moving people on career pathways. We also have been the National Fund for Workforce Solutions champion where there was a profile done on us as well. Been part of New America, Opportunity America, a number of um, publications around investing in people, earn and learn programs. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, given your history with healthcare workforce development, do you observe the shortages to be worsening or, or cyclical? I've seen both over my time. I would say since COVID, it's I would say it's worse than it was just cyclical. I think we've seen just Americans in general look at rebalancing their lives. Um, some of them have decided to retire out early and maybe are going to come back now and we want them to come back. And I see there's great opportunities for them to come back. We've seen families decide to have single income versus dual income. And we've seen people that once they work from home, many people want to work from home now. So I think it's been a little more challenging to inspire people to come back. It's a calling. People run to this work, not away from it. And so um, what we're doing to mitigate that is really going out into communities. Our growth in population in Minnesota is new Americans. And so many um, new Americans could be first generation and may not know the opportunity. So we are doing a lot of work to reach communities we serve, International Institute, Hired, Clues, I can go on and on with the different groups, to really then inspire people to go into these careers, show them what's possible. We have um, scrubs camps for students to go to to learn about healthcare careers that we fund 
We have paid internships for first-generation students. And again, we are out there with not just bringing people in, but trying to move them up. And so we've had a lot of work um, in the state of Minnesota offered new American grants that were people from other countries that have medical credentials to get recredentialed here. So we're trying to do those crosswalks for people here as well. So again, there's a lot of work to be done to really promote and inspire again, but these are careers that touch your heart and last a lifetime. And then I'll just say as well, in Minnesota, I'm honored to be the chair of our Governor's Workforce Development Board. I've served for 20 years for three governors. And so I also chair the Caring Professions Committee with the governor, which is about direct care workers in good jobs. And so I'm part of three good job efforts, one with the governor in the state of Minnesota, and that's all industries, but I chair the caring professions. And it's really an effort about making sure we have family sustaining wages, opportunity voice, and so on. And then we also have the healthcare anchor network, which is what we signed on to as a key employer, which is a 17 page document commitment that I helped part of the team that authored that to look at bringing people in from zip codes that um, have high social determinants of health, providing good paying jobs and benefits, um, also providing education opportunities, earn and learn programs, job navigation, how we instruct our leaders on DE&I, and just looking at goals on hiring and retaining and promoting people of color. And so it's a pretty extensive document that we signed on to very proud that we're one of 17 organizations in the country that signed on. And then National Fund, I've also been working with them on the good jobs and um, part of that team that was brought together. I'll just add one more piece. Um, in my career, serving as the chair of the Governor's Workforce Development Board, that gave me a seat at the National Governors Association. I've you know, worked hard to prove myself there, and um, I have been fortunate to be on the executive committee for eight years. And so from that journey was executive committee to being voted in as vice chair and then unanimously being voted in as chair, 50 states and five territories. And then I'm the past chair now, but we are also working on healthcare. I mean, this is a national effort in the state of Minnesota. It's a key focus for us. And then in Health Force Minnesota, we're one of the states in the country that has had a convening group um, that is the Governor's Healthcare Center of Excellence. And we're working on those healthcare pathways too. And I've been the chair for that group since it started. And so it's what I do. It's what I, um, what I wake up at night and think about, it's my passion and it's, we've got a lot of work to do, but it's work that is so fulfilling and just seeing the results, even one by one is just so rewarding when people find that niche and we help them and then they move on. It's just, it changes their life and changes their family's life. Well, Laura, I'm not surprised at all that uh, these bodies tap you to be in leadership roles and in chair roles. As a matter of fact, you and I met at the NGA in Chicago, right? Yes. We were on the panel for the healthcare section. Well, it's great to be keeping track of your, your career and all your good works. Um, I, I have a question. Um, we've talked about the range of healthcare positions, many of which are in allied health the shortages of doctors, there's shortages in, in oral health occupations. And then, of course, there's shortages in nurses. When I had my sons back many moons ago, the nurses from Malaysia were taking 
care of me. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like we keep repeating this cycle of, of nursing shortage in particular. Now, why do you think that is? Do we have a hard time learning a lesson in this country? Yeah, I think there's a lot of complexities to it. Um, in Minnesota, we have a Center for Nursing Excellence, and we're focused on this. We had two tracks all the time. We had an associate degree track and a baccalaureate and um, entry-level master's track. And at one time, you know, with um, quality and safety, we all wanted four-year degree nurses and above. I think now what we've done is we bring in everyone because sometimes individuals that go to a two-year program, that's their entry in and they're fantastic and we can help them get their baccalaureate degree. But I think we've sometimes in the past have had these standards, you had to be this degree or that degree. And I think that the health systems um, are embracing people where they're at and helping them on their career journey more than I've seen before. And I would say we start really early. My team runs a on-site nursing assistant program that we pay wages and education for. We run that multiple times a month. It's our key feeder for nursing assistant. Once people complete that track that we pay for, the next thing is to have them become an NST. That's the HUC part of it. We pay for that. And then we work with them. We provide job navigation. What's next? How can we help them go back to school to be a nurse? And we do have those um, examples and journeys. We also had um, a formal registered apprenticeship for RN AD to BSN. So anyone that was an AD to help them fi finish your BSN, not just with the tuition support, but adjusting their calendars, working with them, looking at pathways. And we, we also run the um, RN operating room nurse program, which is our key feeder for operating room nurses in our system. But what I've seen is um, there's many pathways and it's not going to just always be that traditional one with a student going directly to nursing. We see more and more of our community colleges running fantastic programs with people in their 30s and 40s coming into nursing. We embrace them. We help them pay for that education. We offer loan forgiveness as well. So if they're not an employee and we're helping them with tuition assistance, we can help them pay for it after with the loan forgiveness program. So why I'm using these examples is I think there's a lot of support out there for anyone going into the nursing workforce to help them pay. So that's not the issue. They don't go, you know, we want someone to be able to freely go into nursing education and how we can support you and embrace you with that. And I think that... Uh, with all the variety of occupations today, nursing's one of them. People have a lot of choices, but if you're a nurse, you can do about anything you want. In our organization, it's endless what our nurses can do. We do a lot with you know people that are published. We're at Academic Medical Center with specialties. So um, we try to be a role model in this space with our university partners. So we're hoping that we inspire more and more people to go into nursing. I do think it's been cyclical, but I do think the pandemic had, um, it was challenging for nursing students to complete their experiences and graduate. And then I think we were all under-enrolled. The schools were under-enrolled for a while. So we have, we're kind of in that downturn. We're trying to get back up again. And then we have a lot of people retiring. Our state has more retirees than new babies. So... Well, certainly Fairview is a role model and exemplar in demonstrating the role of the employer and how an employer can lean in and, and lead these workforce development initiatives. I'm wondering if perhaps you can do a little compare and contrast for 
an employer organization that is starting out versus maybe mid-stage or more mature in terms of workforce development programs, what were some of the key lessons you learned along the way that, you know, like the Laura back then did differently compared to the Laura now? Well, and I speak on this many times. I'll get asked by a chamber or another party to talk about how can a smaller employer, how does a new employer get started? One thing I'll say is in workforce development, we're all in it together. When we partner, we raise everyone up. And so I'd, I've never felt it was a competition in this space because it's hard work, it's long-term work. And so anything we've done, like the registered apprenticeship programs that we've developed can be pulled off a shelf in the state of Minnesota for the next employer to take. So when we went through that process, we developed it, but then we vetted it with um, people in the hospital association with Health Force Minnesota and other employers so they could see it. They do not have to create it now. They can pull it off a shelf. That creation takes infrastructure and time and resources. You know, many times we might take a hundred nurse interns and we've taken that, I've shown the model. We don't just take that summer nurse intern. They do their clinicals with us. They do their capstones with us. They do their winter nurse internship with us. They might have a part-time job and we prep them for the NCLEX. I share those models. So if this next employer takes five, they're doing their piece. It doesn't mean they have to take 100. What we'll do in the state is we'll have a group that gets together on that with all of the bylaws and rules. And so someone can come up and say, I'm doing this for the first time. I'll take one. But then they learn. And same with our scrubs camp. If you can't sponsor 100 people, you might be able to sponsor one. But that one person changed their life. And so we always are willing and I'm always willing to share because this is where we all need to help. And so I think that smaller employers or first, you know, groups that are new to this, learn from the others. And it's all about partnerships. Just last week, I was at UCLA with um, the Healthcare Anchor Network. And my presentation was on building community partnerships to aid in recruiting and retention. I was there as the seasoned person that has done this work for a long time, coupled with someone that just started. So you could contrast both journeys and learn. But that was really helpful for that other person, too, because many people in the room were newer. But they don't have to start from scratch. There's toolkits. There's models out there. And so I think, you know, right now it's what we need to do. So we just need to work with others to help them get started. Well, I certainly echo um, your learnings. I say workforce development is a team sport, not an individual sport, right? You have to learn that through the school of hard knocks. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, So as we wrap up, I'd love to get your observations on major trends in the future of care that you think will affect workforce development. I think that we're really looking at more and more untapped labor pools right now. We have invested in uh, a lot of new Americans and a lot of ESL, a lot of job navigation, crosswalking people to say if they were a physician in another country and they may not ever be a physician in this country, what credential can they obtain? So they feel fulfilled and they can go on. Um, Also really getting in there with um, students and really doing more to inspire students, I think is important. I think that working with older adults I think would be key too, especially when I think of the roles in long-term care, how critical they could be. 
we're going to have to keep looking at innovations. We're going to have to keep looking at simulation. We constantly are you know, looking at who are we partnering with. It's all about partnerships, like you and I just said. And so if we see that we don't see someone coming to us and they're part of the um, patient population, we go to those groups and figure out what we can do to really get more um, individuals involved because we can't leave any populations out right now. And I think, you know, before it used to be that people would get, you know, their applicant pool and they could screen through them. We have a different approach now. Instead of just like, you know, a recruiter may be screening through, but we end up meeting people and finding out what they can do in our organization. People come to our events and it might not match up, but we figure out what they can do and how they get there. And I think that's a different way of thinking is there is space for everyone. And let's figure out if it's a perfect match. If not, how do we match it up? And I think that's the kind of mindset we need to be flexible and to find out what that person wants as well to make a good connection. Well, you are an inspiration, Laura, uh, inspiring us to think differently and really just creatively about how to impact lives out there. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. It's such an honor to work with you. You are just the best in our field. So thank you so much. Likewise, likewise. I'm Vontone Quinlevin with Futura Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm-hmm.